Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 80, The Disloyal Opposition. Last week I talked about the autocracy and its whole support network, and it would not do at all to leave out the actual people who would tear down that old order. Because for our purposes, these guys are the ones that are really going to matter to our narrative. Or at least, some of them anyway. A lot of them don't make it. After all, our focus for right now is on the Soviet Union and what made it tick in its first decade of existence, not on some stuffy old monarchists that never amounted to anything but filler for the dust heap of history. Except it wasn't immediately apparent those monarchists were bound for that dust heap. And because the opposition had to get started during long decades of oppression and isolation, even once the old autocracy was gone, there was a long shadow cast over what had replaced it. So for this week, let's take a look at the players and movements that went into the years of a revolution leading up to the formation of the USSR. I'm tempted to leave you in suspense, but I should probably start with Lenin. Revolutionary activity had generations of history before Lenin, but keep in mind we're kind of hustling to the October Revolution here, and he and his acolytes are the ones who are going to dominate this series. I'll be touching on other groups and people, but mostly how they relate to the Bolsheviks under Lenin's leadership. Born Vladimir Ulyanov, he was the third child of a brood of eight. His father came from a serf background, his mother from the more respectable middle class, with his dad being a schoolteacher and rising to become a minor nobleman. He grew up in a household of some means and an emphasis on learning, and his liberal but not too liberal parents aimed at their kids moving on to bigger and better things in life. For Vladimir, that meant getting an education in law. The economic liberalization of Russia had spread the conception of private property to a larger share of the populace, which caused a boom time for lawyers. At the time of Lenin's youth, it was a good industry to get set up in. Lots of spots were opening, and you got to work your way into the good graces of the ever-richer businessmen of the empire. Too bad for him that the eldest son of the family, Alexander, got himself involved with a bunch of revolutionaries, and from there, a plot to murder the Tsar. He got pinched by the Akrana and put to death, which, as I mentioned last week, was not a terribly common form of punishment, so the state really wanted him in the ground. Lenin was by no means a Marxist or even a revolutionary at that point, but having his brother executed by the regime doubtless left a mark. Lenin was the kind of guy who remembered his enemies and wasn't exactly a compromiser. So the state made a determined, if at the time, minor enemy after that. It certainly narrowed his options, as the fact that his brother died a convicted enemy of the state meant that the authorities were going to be very wary of a young Vladimir, which, as it turned out, they had every right to be. In December 1887, Lenin took part in a student demonstration against government restrictions on those very same kinds of demonstrations and was arrested. It was to be the first in a long line of run-ins with the regime. Now, I'm going to get right to the point when it came to Lenin. He was an imperious bastard at the best of times and dangerously petty at his worst. Intellectually, he was brilliant and a workaholic to boot. If he couldn't convince you of an argument, he could wear you and everyone around you down over the course of years if he had to. He was also a fitness freak and would delight in challenging visitors, even foreign dignitaries during the Russian Civil War, to friendly physical competitions. When in exile in Switzerland in 1904, when he heard that a newly arrived comrade was a weightlifter, Lenin had his guest show him the finer points of the sport immediately. Like Marx before him, he had a biting wit and was wholly unafraid of trampling the feelings of anyone who stood in his way, regardless if they were supposed to be an ally or not. 
His personal drive and confidence in his own abilities made him eminently suitable for the time period he lived in. His road to radicalization might have started with his brother's execution, but it was enhanced when he read the novel What Is To Be Done by Nikolai Chernyshevsky. That book had been published back in 1863 during those first heady years of Alexander II's great reforms, and whose vision of a socialist communal lifestyle was both inspirational by itself and also a powerful contrast to the autocracy's own plans for the nation. Lenin absolutely loved the book, even going so far as giving one of his more notable political tracks the same title. And once out of jail and back in contact with revolutionary cells, he was introduced to another, shall we say, more cerebral book, Karl Marx's Capital. That book's special relationship with Russia is actually pretty ironic. One would think that the Tsar's censors would absolutely, positively, ban the hell out of that book. But they didn't. And it wasn't exactly due to negligence, either. What happened is that the censor's office got a copy of the book, and whoever was in charge of reviewing it determined that its contents didn't apply to Russia, which wasn't an unintelligent conclusion, either. The basic formula that Marx laid out in Capital was that social history followed a general process. You start with feudalism, where a nobility controls the land, which in pre-industrial times was the source of wealth. As society advances somewhat, commerce expands, and a money class, the bourgeois, comes into being. They start demanding rights and political power to match their intellectual and economic capabilities, and would bring about a liberal revolution to put themselves into power. This opens the door to the second phase, capitalism, where the new liberal regime allows private enterprise freedom of action. In a technologically advanced society, that means the moneyed classes invest in ever bigger businesses in order to secure more money in which to build bigger businesses. This would do wonders to expand the economy, but then lead to social distress that would necessitate a second revolution, this time a socialist one. At this stage, the lower classes that actually built all those new enterprises would gain control of the state, and from there be able to fairly distribute the fruits of their labor. After that would probably come communism, where the state can be dissolved and society reorganized to where everybody works in sync with each other's needs as a matter of course. We don't need to worry about that last step, as every state-branded communist in history has at best only been able to reach the socialist stage. When the Soviets talked about building towards communism, they meant exactly that, building to it. They weren't actually able to achieve it. What I'm saying with that a very, very simplistic overview of some of the many lessons in Capital is that a liberal revolution needed to first precede a socialist one, and even afterwards, time needed to pass for the bourgeois to build up an industrialized economy. Marx was very specifically looking at Western Europe when he wrote the book. Uh, to the eyes of a censor, and in fact even to the eyes of most Russian revolutionaries who later got their hands on the book, Russia didn't fit the bill, and ergo the book's lessons didn't apply. The most commonly cited comment by the censors stated that very few people in Russia will read it, and even fewer will understand it, which uh, wasn't quite how things panned out. Upon its first printing in 1872, the book spread like wildfire among the Russian intelligentsia, selling thousands of copies and becoming the biggest market for the book, which certainly threw Marx off, as he was quick to point out his book's lessons weren't really applicable to the empire but hardly anyone counted on somebody like Lenin to show up and put his own spin on Marxism to basically say, but what if we did have a socialist revolution in a mostly pre-industrial state? 
which, as I described back in episode 78, Russia wasn't totally feudal still, just mostly so. There was an urban proletariat by the time Lenin had gotten going in the 1890s, and also as I covered, that proletariat was growing at speeds the regime couldn't keep up with, and there were no signs it was going to slow down. Lenin advanced the idea that while the urban proletariat in Russia was not yet at an equivalent portion of the population compared to modern economies elsewhere, it was big enough that they could start being organized for an eventual revolution. And once that revolution came, what industry existed in Russia would be adequate to act as the basis for further industrialization under the auspices of a socialist state. And Lenin couldn't predict the coming revolutions in 1905 and 1917, so he wasn't even certain that conditions for revolutionary action would even be present in the near future, so he was more getting just ahead of the game. If you had some of the ingredients and a little bit of gumption to make up for the material shortcomings, maybe socialism was still worth a shot. He also advanced a second idea that was less a matter of ideology and more a matter of tactics. Still, it became a cornerstone of the Leninism part of Marxism-Leninism. He looked around at the chaotic cells of left-wing revolutionaries and realized that the grab bag of cliques and smaller personalities weren't going to bring the promised revolution about even under optimal circumstances. In response to these shortcomings, he advocated the creation of a vanguard party. What this meant was that whatever kind of socialist state that would appear as a result of a revolution would need capable, dedicated leadership. The Vanguard Party would be a deliberately small group of professional revolutionaries totally committed to the cause and prepared to take control of the state apparatus and begin socializing it immediately. This would solve the traditional problem of people taking to the streets, disabling the state, and then not really knowing what to do. Once that last part was reached, the professionals would step in and make the hard decisions on behalf of the masses. And the small number of dedicated members meant that these would be types whose entire lives were lived for the purpose of revolution. Family life, friends, hobbies, employment, they would all either be very secondary concerns or not even present for these guys. Left unsaid but perfectly understood was that this professional group would be under Lenin's unquestioned command. And this is where I'm going to turn to where Lenin fit into the greater leftist scene during the final decades of the Tsarist state, because he very much rose through the ranks of an already existing movement. He moved to St. Petersburg in 1893 and came to command his own Marxist cell. He traveled abroad and rubbed shoulders with the established leadership figures of the Russian left, who tellingly were exiled outside of Russia. He impressed his seniors with his intelligence and work ethic, and I'm glancing over them because I am deep enough in the weeds already as it is. The thing to take away is that Lenin very quickly was seen as someone to follow. Back home, though, he was being watched like a hawk, and his activities got him arrested in 1896. After a year in jail, he was sent on a three-year exile to Siberia, which was kind of a rite of passage for all the Russian revolutionaries. His girlfriend at the time, Nadia Krupskaya, was also exiled a year later and arranged for her to join him based on the false pretense that they were engaged. Wherever they were in their relationship, they went ahead and got married in 1898. Krupskaya is actually a figure that is going to play into future events and is a very notable figure among the Bolsheviks in her own right. She was an accomplished thinker and as a working partner was invaluable for Lenin and the Bolsheviks as a whole. Some have questioned their actual affection for each other, but by all accounts, they were a close couple. And as Lenin's stature rose, her proximity to him gave her a kind of aura. She knew Lenin best, so her approval counted to others. Once Lenin's later health problems set in and it was obvious that he was on his way out, 
Her support was courted by his successors in their power games against each other. Once Lenin got out of exile, though, was when events started moving a bit faster and he began to leave his mark on the Russian Marxists as a whole. All those isolated cells and splinter groups had managed to come together and form the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, or the RSDLP for short, bringing all the revolutionary Marxists under one banner for the first time. This organization would eventually permutate into the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, so it's worth remembering. The party was, of course, illegal. Nothing had changed in the interim as far as Marxists being able to operate in the open. The first party congress that formed the organization was attended by only nine representatives, of which five were later arrested, three others were monitored, and the last was a snitch to the Akrana. Not a great start, and the organization was in disarray for years, until it pulled itself back together enough that a second congress was held in Brussels in 1903. This meeting was a lot more important because many of the future big names were in attendance. Lenin was there, as was a man named Julius Martov. He had been a close associate of Lenin's and had worked with him in the years both before and after his Siberian exile. Martov was also the mentor of Leon Trotsky, who was also in attendance during this conference. The big thing to happen during the RSDLP's Second Congress was the sudden split between Lenin and Martov. Martov favored going with the European Socialist model when it came to membership in the party and allow anyone in who would pledge to follow the party's leadership. Lenin, on the other hand, pushed his idea of a vanguard party and demanded stricter membership requirements. This didn't sit well with much of the Congress, as Lenin was basically proposing to centralize control of the still-new party, and moreover, most likely central it under his control. The vision of the party would be to represent the proletariat, but not offer a democratic mechanism for them to engage with it. It was expected the workers would form unions and councils amongst themselves, but they would have to place themselves at the disposal of the party. This smacked of dictatorship to many, and initially Lenin lost the vote over the issue 28-23. But during the Congress, seven of those delegates walked out over other issues, and Lenin forced the issue again and got his way. He then staged an inspired bit of branding by calling his faction the Bolsheviks, or the Majoritarians, and Martov's group the Mensheviks, the Minoritarians. Martov would refuse to work directly with Lenin on party matters after Lenin afterwards seized control of the Marxist newspaper they both worked on, and the two factions would be permanently at odds. Which wasn't to say the RSDLP went away. Both factions' members were still fully in the party. They just were permanently feuding members of it. It's funny, their actual takes on Marxism were largely the same, uh, downright like-minded. Their differences were simply in tactics and personalities. Martov wanted a democratic process and relied on his friendliness and charm to cover his deficiencies in the leadership department. Lenin was a tyrant, but a supremely capable one who inspired confidence in those willing to work under him. His was a harder brand of revolution focused entirely on the ends, which appealed to fewer people, but as time would prove, was better suited to the chaos to come. That isn't to say that Lenin ruled the Bolshevik faction with the same iron-handedness that Stalin later would. Their motley organization played host to fierce internal debates, and small as they were, the Bolsheviks contained personalities that commanded their own followings as well. A few notable names to keep in mind are Lev Kamenev, Grigory Zinoviev, and Nikolai Bukharin. The first two were close associates and supporters of Lenin and the RSDLP. Kamenev mostly operated inside Russia and as a result was arrested and or exiled several times. He was a professional revolutionary from the time that he was a student, and living that life left a mark on him. 
Leading an underground existence left him naturally cautious, which is going to be important once we hit 1917, and he becomes a Bolshevik most likely to work with other factions, and also one of those most doubtful about the viability of a Bolshevik takeover. Zinoviev took a different course, joining Lenin in exile and becoming his de facto major domo. Whenever Lenin needed to send a proxy, it was Zinoviev. Like Kamenev, he turned out to be cautious, but this was due to a dual streak of excitability and cowardice that caused him to constantly change his positions once genuine leadership was required. Bukharin was the baby of the Bolshevik leadership, being only 29 by October 1917. He was also regarded as one of its leading intellectuals, perhaps second only to Lenin, and sometimes Lenin worried that the student had already surpassed the master, which caused tension because Bukharin did not automatically subordinate himself to Lenin. He admired his intellectual elder, but didn't follow him blindly. His talent at churning out impeccably reasoned essays and articles couldn't be denied, though, and while this wouldn't equate to prominence during the years of the Russian Civil War, afterwards, when Lenin had become incapacitated and, well, later dead, Bukharin was considered the successor brainiac. One name outside the Bolsheviks to know is Leon Trotsky, who for the longest time rolled with the Menshevik crowd on account of him and Lenin constantly butting heads. Also a major thinker and writer, he was an expert rabble-rouser, and unlike a lot of Marxists, was a truly gifted public speaker. Nobody could command a room among the Marxists quite like Trotsky could, which was additionally impressive given that his appearance was nerdy to the point of being a cliché. So even though he denied Lenin's supremacy and disagreed with the whole vanguard party approach at first, he was still respected even by the Bolsheviks, and his support was always desired. And you might be noticing that I've been glossing over one other very big name. Joseph Stalin is someone we're going to be spending a lot of time later on with. Three episodes just on his early life to be exact. So for now, just know that he was operating down in the Caucasus Mountains during these pre-1917 days, constantly in and out of exile, and slowly being elevated in the Bolshevik ranks by Lenin. By 1917, he would be a confirmed top leader of the party, but mostly as an organizer and internal troubleshooter. The strict Marxists weren't the only opposition to the autocracy either, nor were they the only ones who would be factors in the revolutions to come and the aftermath. The other major group on the left were the Social Revolutionaries, or the SRs for short. They were the ideological descendants of the peasant populist movements from a few decades previous. Whereas that movement broke down in the face of a mixture of indifference and hostility from the peasant communities at the time, the SRs got going in the 1890s and unified in 1892, very similar in time frame to the RSDLP, and also at a time when the peasants' grievances had built to a point where they now found a receptive audience. Their platform did encourage ownership of production amongst both the urban proletariat and the peasantry, but it was among the latter group that they've kind of found their niche. Whereas the Marxists in the RSDLP saw even small peasant landholders as members of the bourgeois, at least in training, the SR's big selling point was a promise to not just do away with the repressive autocracy, but also redistribute the nation's farmland in a more equitable manner. Which is to say they wanted to smash up the remaining noble estates, which, even after the serfs were emancipated, were still huge chunks of land. An important distinction, as Marxists usually like to stress the state ownership of the land, whereas the average peasant greatly preferred the SR's local communal approach. Another distinctive feature of the SR's was their sister organization, the SR Combat Organization. 
As the name suggests, this particular subset of the larger group was focused on taking the fight to the autocracy directly. The last decades of Imperial Russia were a dangerous time to be a public official, as thousands were killed in assassinations. And that just so happened to be the combat organization's specialty. Officially part of the SRs, but also independent in practice for hopefully obvious reasons of accountability, the combat organization would perform the bomb attacks and targeted assassinations that had become part of revolutionary culture. That being said, the group was also heavily infiltrated by the Akrana, so they weren't exactly going to be the spearhead for an armed confrontation with the regime. It also caused rifts in the party as many felt terrorism to be counterproductive, which, you know, was kind of fair. The regime's increasing weakness was, even at the time, obviously coming from its own incompetence and corruption. The killing of government officials, and even a czar, didn't really make much of a dent in the regime. It was doing all the denting by itself. The SRs were also not a monolithic group either, even less so than the RSDLP. The rifts that existed were not just over terrorism, but the overall goals. Those on the far left wanted every bit the social revolution to match the dreams of their Marxist fellows, while those closer to the center were more reformist in character, who desired the establishment of representative government to carry out those reforms. This more centrist bloc was also interested in working with the liberals of the country in order to secure those political and social freedoms. The leftists, though, disdained the liberals as too close and bound to the regime to be of any help in that regard. The tension was going to be a big reason why the group would never be able to offer determined leadership in the future. With the party divided against itself, it wouldn't be able to seize opportunities the way, say, oh, well, I don't know, Lenin could with a unified group. By the time 1917 rolls around, that organization would be split into the left and right SR factions. And speaking of the liberals, they were very much around as well, and in fact before 1917 were by far the biggest source of political opposition to the autocracy. Not to say the czar or even the regime per se, but just the overwhelming power of the autocracy at the very least. These guys would coalesce in 1905 into two primary parties— the moderate Octoberists, who would restrict their demands to a constitution and representative government, and the more liberal cadets, who were more open to limiting the Tsar's powers and overhauling society, in addition to those first two items. While they wouldn't get underway as official parties until after 1905, they're still the same types of people that I brought up in episode 78. They were professionals, people of some means, sometimes nobles even, and oftentimes already had political experience by being members of their local Zemspos. The vast majority didn't have truly revolutionary beliefs beyond wanting some representation and reform, and if they lived in a time of responsible government, their demands could probably have been attended to pretty easily, or at least enough of them could have been placated that they wouldn't be a source of trouble. But this was an empire under Nicholas II we're talking about here. His blind adherence to the dogma that his own powers were sacrosanct in more ways than one meant he was psychologically incapable of giving an inch on his on-paper powers even though, as I discussed last week, he was really bad at exercising that power. So instead of playing the myriad shades of liberals against each other to preserve the majority of his power, Nicholas instead proceeded to antagonize everybody to the point where even those inclined to defend the regime could hardly stomach him. And like I mentioned, these guys had experience working in the Zemspos. They had actual experience in government and creating legislation. They weren't just some ivory tower intellectual types who read a bunch of books that came from Western Europe and decided that they had the brain power to implement them in a place like Russia. Most were engaged in some kind of active trade and knew full well how bad things had gotten by the turn of the century and how they were getting worse. 
they wished to govern on behalf of the people and were at least nominally aware of the underclass's grievances. Before Nicholas had even ascended to the throne, they were already deeply unhappy with the government's efforts to curtail the Zemsfo's capabilities to actually govern themselves, and had come to see the government in St. Petersburg as an increasing liability, at least in its current form. One incident in particular, just a few years before Nicholas became czar, underlined the inability of the state to respond to a crisis. As so many sad tales coming from Russia begin with, it started with a famine. The fall of 1891 was terribly dry, which meant that it was unsuitable to plow and plant crops for the spring until later in the season. Even after the planting had been completed, though, the lack of rainfall continued into the winter. This was really bad, as the characteristically Russian piles of snow shielded those spring crops from the intense temperatures of the land's winters. The snow didn't come, and the first harvests for 1892 were ruined. The summer didn't bring any relief either, as it came early and was both hot and dry. Famine conditions became present in 17 provinces, the majority of the southern core of Russia, and home to 36 million people. Those who were able to packed up and tried to move to unaffected areas. The thatched roofs of peasant huts were used to feed livestock. Wells started to run dry. The desperate resorted to eating wild plants and bark. By the end of 1892, a half million people had died mostly as a result of cholera and typhus hitting the malnourished populace. By the end of 1892, a half million people had died, mostly as a result of cholera and typhus hitting the malnourished populace. The situation demanded relief, and Tsar Alexander ordered it, but actually getting help to the affected areas proved beyond the capabilities of the bureaucracy. The affected area was huge, but harvest still came in elsewhere in the empire, and surplus food was on hand. However, the transportation network was insufficient to actually ship the needed food, and the government couldn't organize an alternative. In fact, the worst possible decision was taken by the government, one that exploded in their faces in a massive PR disaster. By midsummer of 1892, it was painfully clear that a famine was going to hit hard, but the government delayed a ban on shipping grain out of the affected areas until August. And even then, they gave merchants several weeks' notice in advance that the ban was coming. By the time the ban actually came into place, most of the food had already been shipped out by the businessmen. This was supported by the Minister of Finance at the time, who was far more concerned with making sure the grain was available for export on foreign markets instead of his starving population. Which, uh, well, that's going to happen again down the road under slightly different circumstances. The government was also undermined by its efforts to play down the conditions further south, with the major city newspapers only mentioning a poor harvest, not the disaster that it was. It was only in November that the government signaled that the situation was out of control and allowed the public to make independent efforts to provide famine relief. The response was far, far greater than anything the government put together. The well-to-do and prosperous rushed to provide what they could and made arrangements to get it where needed. Especially among the educated liberals of the cities, there was a painful knowledge of the poverty the peasantry lived in, a misery that underpinned their whole society, and it had always gnawed at their consciences. The famine whipped them into a frenzy of generosity as they sought to pay back the peasantry in their hour of greatest need. And it was the Zemsfos that stepped up and began coordinating all these efforts in the provinces and districts. These organizations, which had seen their powers constricted by a suspicious autocracy, now began making the rules on their home turfs, bypassing the regime entirely. The situation was grave enough that the state allowed this to happen, opting to stand aside and let the Zemsfos do their work. 
In this manner, the liberal portion of the country became dead set against the regime and became willing to throw in with the socialists and SRs in order to force political reform to actually happen. They just needed an opening when the regime was weak enough nationally to make their move. The last source of major opposition to the regime that I'm going to mention are the scattered non-Russian nationalities. Russia was called by Lenin to be a prison of nations, and he wasn't wrong. The late 1800s saw stirrings of nationalism in much of the empire, just as it did elsewhere in the world, which the autocracy was, again, woefully ill-equipped to handle. The biggest example was the one furthest west, in Poland. The Polish people had a long history of independence, and as I described in episode 38, they had organizations and leaders actively opposed to the continued Russian presence. The last rebellion there back in 1863 had only been put down after over a year of fighting, and since then, Poland had been subjected to decades of reprisals to keep them in line. Any major show of weakness would create the danger of a new uprising. Further north, in the Baltic region, that area had seen its industrialization really take off, especially around the town of Riga in future Latvia. That region was heavily populated by non-Russians, and due to its long history connected to nations further west, was treated differently than the core provinces further east. The people there were increasingly in favor of reform as their own educational and economic development proceeded much faster than the rest of the empire. Back in episode 37, I covered Finland's special status as a grand duchy in the empire, which allowed it autonomy. That region, too, developed faster than the rest of the country, and because of its separate laws, also became a haven for anti-regime leaders who wanted to lay low, but not too far away. That the last czars began working to strip the region of those separate rights also angered the Finns heavily. Then there were the southern areas down in the Caucasus Mountains and across the Caspian Sea and the vast tracts of Central Asia that Russia had recently conquered. In the mountains, the Russians had to reckon with nationalist movements in Georgia and Armenia. In Central Asia, the regime's efforts to colonize the vast area with Russians and develop it for agriculture angered the people who already lived there and derived a livelihood from the fragile, pre-existing economy. Arable land and water were at a premium there, and the pressures of hundreds of thousands of Russian families put a mighty strain on resources. Plus, the more the region was developed, the more the government made its presence felt. It was one thing to be part of an empire where the capital was very distant by road, but once railways and telegraph lines started being installed, the world became much smaller, and the locals became acutely aware of their subject status. All in all, by 1904, the Russian Empire was a powder keg, and yes, I could use that cliche in a lot of places in this podcast, but this is the best example, so I'm using it here. The autocracy had lost much of its legitimacy. Tsar Nicholas was disengaged from the big problems facing the country, and the bureaucracy was overwhelmed. Against them, all the political factions of the country were unifying around the idea of some kind of representative government, while the Zemsvos were pushing back against national-level authorities that had failed them repeatedly. All the situation needed was a spark, something like, oh, I don't know, maybe a dumb and pointless war. Which was convenient, because thanks to arrogantly antagonizing the Japanese Empire a decade previous, the autocracy was about to get a taste of its own medicine, as that empire decided to settle the score by force. Like I mentioned last week, I know I mostly covered the war back in the Japanese episodes, so this time I'll be covering the domestic reactions in Russia, which would rapidly turn from anger to full-blown revolution. And it wouldn't be the only one either. Join me next week as we enter the era of revolutions and the dominoes I've set up over the past couple weeks start getting knocked down. I'll see you then. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.